just like with last week's episode, the following episode will be dealing with graphic content, specifically sexual abuse, which may be upsetting for some listeners. Please listen at your own discretion. Last week's episode 18 was the first in a short series of episodes that we're doing dealing with the sexual abuse. We decided to start with the history, meaning the early years when Donna became pregnant with Doreen, when Mark and Donna got married, and when Mark Vincent then moved in with Donna's family, her parents and her three younger siblings. Um, The story sets the precedent for everything that would ultimately happen later, because right from the beginning, you had an 18-year-old male, Mark, who became obsessed with a 15-year-old girl, Donna, followed her around in his car, enough that she would duck down and hide whenever she saw his car drive by. Donna's own mother, Jane, calls him a stalker. But he works his way into this family. And now you've got Donna's two younger sisters in the mix, too, Carol and Debbie, who were about 13 and 12. We've spoken about Debbie's memories of Mark coming into the bedroom at night with a flashlight and creeping around at the foot of the bed. And we've spoken about Carol's memory of going inside June's house to change, to go swimming. And Mark coming in to perform oral sex on her and have her perform on him. But today we're going to talk about Doreen. We played a few clips last week of Karen Calcaterra, licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and we're going to hear quite a bit more from her today as we talk about the signs of similar abuse in Doreen Vincent's behavior. Jessica and I are here with you again to take you through this portion of the story. This is season two, episode 19 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Demio. Our first clip, we wanted to sort of introduce what the signs are. I want to introduce the first clip of Karen that we're going to play, um, talking a little bit more about the signs of sexual abuse in children. Um, So how much background did Karen have about uh, the Doreen Vincent case before you met with her? Uh, She knew a little bit about it because, you know, she's my friend. I've spoken to her about it personally. Um, She had listened to, I think she's about halfway through the season when she and I met. Um, So I was there to talk with her objectively about what sexual abuse might present like in young girls, but also to talk to her about details which we had learned in our investigation and then get her thoughts on what that represented for Doreen specifically. There's no like set way that somebody who's being sexually abused would act. Most of the time, the biggest indicator is a a sudden change. Like I said, so a kid who is really withdrawn suddenly becomes outgoing, or a kid that's really outgoing suddenly becomes withdrawn. Okay. A shy kid suddenly becomes almost flirtatious, especially around older people. Okay. Um, I see that a lot in clinical situations with little, little kids that will be very sexualized with adults because it's what they've learned to do. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a coping skill to get people to pay attention to you. Um, You might see some of that. But mostly it would be a change. So not smiling anymore. 
staying in your room, not wanting to go to a specific place anymore, crying for no reason, just anything that's out of the ordinary. But this kid was, like, bounced around so much. Did anybody, like, have their eyes on her all the time? No. Consistently? No. Okay. And she was, she lived with her mom sometimes. She lived with her dad sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, She did live with her grandmother for a while. And then um, I think everybody started noticing specific things. Did she ever tell anybody? No, and she was asked. And she said no. She said no. Very common. So those are some of the initial signs that you look for in a child in this type of situation. So you also had the opportunity to talk to a former teacher of Doreen's, um, like a fourth grade teacher, I believe he was. His name is Tom Pannone. He had her, he couldn't remember, in the fourth or fifth grade um, at the Carrington School in Bridgeport. The hard part about this, and I think the hard thing you'll notice throughout this entire story, is that Doreen arrived in the middle of the year, went through to the end of the year, And then was gone after that year. So when we talk about people who saw signs in her, a lot of them didn't have the opportunity to see her on any sort of sustained basis. Um, But Sarah, he did get in touch with you, I think, earlier on, and he sent it to the wrong email. So we missed him as a witness for a while. Because what happened was um, I first received an email from him in April when I was in Des Moines for a few days. And he said in his email to me that he had tried a few times before, like three times before to get in touch with us. And when I got that email, of course, the first thing I said to him was, well, uh, thank you for keep trying for keeping on trying. Yeah, (laughs) appreciate that. Um, Tell me about some of the things that he mentioned about Doreen, like she would, she was a good student, but Occasionally, she would stare off into space and things like that. He said she was very on track academically, um, no concerns academically. She was a really good kid. Uh, She got along well with her classmates. But, you know, one of the very first things that he told me was that um, he remembers two or three incidents where she would just for no reason out of nowhere start screaming at one of her classmates. Um, And he didn't know why. Um, Remember, too, he doesn't really know Doreen that well. And these episodes, these outbursts were so, you know, clear in his memory. But he was never able to figure out why that was. And he would ask her um, what's wrong. He also said every once in a while she would just sit at her desk staring into space. um, And she always seemed really sad when she did that. But again, you know, no explanation. It's sort of this moment lost in time that we can't talk to Doreen about. We did talk to a teacher, I think it was the fourth or the fifth grade, who said that um, she just always seemed very, so this is obviously younger, but she just always seemed very sad um, yeah. and would stare into space. Yeah. Um, but that she was a good student and mm-hmm. she was friendly enough and, you know, achieving where she needed to be achieving. But he said every once in a while, I think it happened two or three times, she would just start screaming at one of her classmates. Really? Out of nowhere, yeah. And he didn't remember why. Okay. So would that be reflective of something? Well, anything could be. If it, you know, the the question would be, why does everybody suspect this is happening? If this keeps coming up around her, Mm -hmm. why does everybody think that? Do they think that because of the way she was behaving, or do they think that because of what they know about 
this man. This man, of course, being Mark Vincent that we're talking about there. This is a a loaded question um, because we've learned a lot about who Mark is by this point. How do we differentiate the behaviors that the teacher noticed based on the history that we know, based on actual victims? Well, I think Karen puts it really well. She says, is, does this keep coming up because of what you know about Doreen? Or does this keep coming up because of what you know about Mark? I mean, we've got living, breathing witnesses telling us what kind of person Mark is uh, with regard to little girls. And I think one of the saddest things here is that, you know, we did the history based on Debbie and Carol, but today we're doing the science based on Doreen and she's not here to speak for herself. You have to remember about Doreen, too, is that I mean, we've talked about this before. She moved around a lot. So it wasn't easy for her. It couldn't have been, at least. And I think her family is very cognizant of that. And I think that that's something to keep in mind, too, is that throughout the 12 years that Doreen was with us, there's no one consistent person that's with her that entire time. Right. And I think... If she's with an adult, she's with either the maternal side of her family who's been victimized and people have been talking a lot of the, about this on the followers of Facebook page, what it looks like when you're a victim of sexual abuse or your family has been a victim of sexual abuse of a child. Um, I think those people are, um, they've been traumatized. The other adult really in the picture is Mark and Sharon, who we know very little about, but as far as I know, um, Sharon was kind of along for Mark's ride. I don't mean that she was complicit in anything, but I think he had her under his control as well. I know she was moving around a lot and she was with your sister and she was with Mark and she was with your mom. Um, how do you think that affected her? I think it made her life very difficult. I think it might have been, it made it a little bit hard, you know? Yeah. She had a very hard life. Well, she had it rough. She really did. I mean, you know, I mean, here she is, like, living with me sometimes, living with him sometimes. It, it was hard. It, I'm sure that was hard on her uh, emotionally, you know. But when we were together, we had a good time. We talked and laughed and, you know, did things. And, you know, and I felt like she was kind of open with me. Maybe, you know, I'm sure, sure certain things she kept inside, you know. I knew she had a little scrapbook and she used to, because he was a born-again Christian. He didn't like her listening to certain music, you know. So, of course, when she's with me, you know, we got that music on and stuff. And um, she she would, you know, cut out little things and do yeah. little scrapbooking, you know, like of the stars and um she loved Alyssa Milano and uh, there was some gospel singer she learned to like because the, he would let her listen to that one and and I mean we it, we were good together we yeah. really were we were getting there anyways I mean I know that she was 12 and I was you know, in my 20s but I mean it, it was we were getting better. We were getting good. And she was, she did have a hard time, but she had a rough life. She yeah. really did. We just heard from Carol there, and then that was Donna just after that. And you can still tell that there's a lot of pain when they talk about Doreen because they see a lot of it in hindsight, how difficult it must have been just for Doreen. 
just living through that time. Well, that's right. And if Doreen were still with us and with them, then I'm sure that guilt would be really prevalent. But that girl is gone. So then it translates into the guilt must be overwhelming. But they they still come to the table and talk about it. And they're so open and honest with us that, um, you know, I, I think we just really have to be grateful because it's it's part of telling Doreen's story. But clearly, Donna and her sisters did not feel comfortable with Doreen living with Mark. And th- that's the whole reason why Donna decided to have just take Doreen and move her down to Florida to live uh, with with her grandparents. We heard a little bit from Jane Murad, uh, Donna's mother, last week. And I'd like to play a little bit more from her because... We didn't really talk about Mark's reaction when Doreen was suddenly uprooted. It always strikes me like Sharon and Mark tried so hard to keep Doreen away from Donna by Boomfinger to Wallingford and taking the phone off the wall. And, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, it was like he didn't want her to have any part of her. Right. And that's, that's controlling, I guess, you know. But I always see in my head, like, you know, her driving all the way out to Wallingford. Because, you know, things are different now. You've got technology and cell phones and, you know, right, Garmin right. Um, to just to drive. I mean, I've driven up a few times now to look at the house uh, where Doreen and Mark and Sharon were living. And it's isolated. And to think that Donna and Carol found her or found the house and that they also went to Middletown, New York, I think it was, and right. searched and found her, you know, that shows me you know, dedication and persistence and, you know. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, really, I think she sent her down, she sent her down here because she didn't want her to be living there and going to school. And she, I don't know why exactly, you know. I, I don't know. Like maybe it was the distance or whatever. That I couldn't tell you. But she didn't tell Mark either, right? She just took her and oh, sent no. her. Yeah. Oh, no. When Mark found out, he was a raving maniac. Yeah. I mean, he was. I think if if he could kill her, he probably would have. Did oh, yeah. He was really crazy. Do you remember how he found out that she was gone? I don't know. I was here in Florida. I don't know. I don't. Well, he, he called Don, I'm sure. Did he ever call you guys in Florida? No. No. He never spoke with me. But it is pretty impressive what Donna and her sisters, the lengths that they were willing to go through, um, because if you think about it, um, you know, there's no it's it's the 1980s. There's no GPS. There's no things like that. And Donna and her sisters um, drove all the way down to Middletown, New York, um, drove from elementary school to elementary school until they found which one Doreen was at. Right. Until they found her. Yeah. And this is, I mean, it remains a very 1980s story. There's absolutely no way a mother's going to be able to pluck a daughter out of elementary school these days and just put her on a plane. But um, call it what it is, but they went and they did what they could to try to take her out of a bad situation. Um, It reminds me of when Donna and Carol and Debbie just said, screw it, um, when the phone was off the wall in Wallingford and they just decided to take the directions that Sharon had given them and and drive up to Whirlwind Hill Road um, and try to take Doreen for the weekend like they were supposed to. Keep in mind, too, you know, the three-day waiting period 
too, because like we wanted to talk about that a little bit too. When they finally right. got to the house to report her missing, um, you know, this was still a common practice with missing kids in the eighties. Right. Um, yeah. I don't think we've really talked about this yet, um, and I don't think the listeners know this part yet because it's still just it makes me so angry. So Doreen is supposed to have gone missing on the fifteenth. We think it's the twelfth. That's open to conjecture. Donna finds that she's missing on the 18th. And then part of the reason why the police wouldn't let Donna and her sisters file a report on the 18th was because they needed to wait 72 hours. There was a missing child and they needed to adhere to the 72 hour uh, waiting period before they could report her missing. Now, she'd already been missing for three days, you know, according to Mark's own admission from the 15th to the 18th. Now we're at the 18th. Donna and her sisters have to wait until the 21st to file a missing persons report. So now we're at the 21st. Um, it's maddening because I think based on our theory, Sarah, we're from June 12th to June 21st. Now it's been nine days since she's been gone. Yeah. At least six. Yeah. I mean, at the very least. So you've you you've got a rule in place at the police department that they can't do anything for at least three days. And, you know, it's entirely likely that something happened either June 11th or June 12th. So by the time the police start to do anything, she's already 10 days gone. So, I mean, and, you know, if you look at any missing persons case, even if it is an abduction by a stranger, unfortunately, statistically speaking, um, the the victim is usually dead within the first 24 hours right and 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 clues start to grow cold and i i think that's i mean i think we need to mention what day we're recording it's saturday june 15th yes um it's been 31 years since mark said she went missing so the the clues are ice cold here we're here bringing them to life you know breathing warmth into them but they were already behind the eight ball when this whole thing started. But again, with Mark, Jane, in that last clip that we just played, talks about he was a raving maniac when he found out that Doreen had just been uprooted and shipped down to Florida. You know, he was so angry. Uh, he was so angry at Donna. He would have killed her if he could have. Right. Well, we've heard this mentioned before. Doreen runs away and Mark is there in a split second at the door as Doreen walks into it. A raving maniac looking for his token for his idol back. You know, we've we've heard that he was a raving maniac in this situation. So put yourself it's June 15th. She's missing. Why is he waiting three days? I We know this is, you know, par for the course here. We know something else happened. Let's just be honest. But mm-hmm. It's the days of claiming that she was a runaway are over forever because he would have lost his mind. In your conversation with Jane, um, she did talk about how Mark would never physically come to Florida. And it's it's in the audio. And I couldn't isolate the, the clip for this particular recording session today. But... The way she explained it was that maybe it was, I mean, she started to say it in the last clip. Uh, Maybe it was because of the distance and because, you know, New York, Connecticut and Florida, obviously it's like 1200 miles away and that's an expensive trip. Um, And Jane mentioned that maybe it, 
you know, it was because of the cost. Maybe Mark wouldn't wouldn't make that trip. Here's a couple things I want everybody to remember real quick. Mark had rich friends, okay? Jimmy Farnham's a rich friend. George is a rich friend. Um, June is a, a rich friend. Um, everything I hear tells me he's, you know, a bright, young, attractive sociopath in the 1980s. Um, I have to track it down in the hours of audio we have because everywhere I hear he had a Corvette at some point. Um, you know, kind of a down and out drifter carpenter. He's got a Corvette, which that's a far cry from that blue car he stole from Frank IML um, back in the 80s. But, uh, you know, I never forget, too, this is very important. He had enough money to try to give Debbie $200 for a bribe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we've talked about this before, Sarah. I mean, it's all conjecture. But what about that money that Doreen was supposed to have had in her wallet? Yeah, she went like either fifty or seventy dollars mm-hmm. is is what the reports always say. It's always either fifty or seventy. Fifty or seventy dollars in nineteen eighty eight. It's a lot of money. I so I did the math conversion, and it's either one hundred and one dollars for fifty, or it's one hundred and forty nine dollars for seventy. Um, you know, he said that she had that for housework. I asked Donna at Bingo. You know, did did. Doreen make any money around the house now remember they moved there on the 5th and she was gone as early as the 12th as late as the 15th I don't know how much housework you have to do to make $149 but they also had a small apartment in Bridgeport before that too um you know again this is conjecture this is this is not us trying to point the finger but you know a a little girl having that much cash like uh, Mark was able to try to offer Debbie about you know eight or ten years earlier is is a little disconcerting well and and also too missing from the wallet when it was found too right did they not give it to her or did they take it from her because it was either there or it wasn't or if it was there someone took it and so you know like the jacket and the rebox and the tape recorder um she never left that house, but did she have money to begin with? We we don't know the answer because she's not here to ask. That, well, and and again because we've said this multiple times on this podcast because every single word of this report that we keep rehashing is the word of Mark, right? And Sharon, who's mm-hmm. gone and can't answer anymore. Mm-hmm. So I want you to put yourself in Doreen's shoes. I mean, she's a young child; she's not mature enough to understand why she's moving back and forth, why her parents don't get along with each other. She does not know the history of what happened with Mark and the family. She's getting uprooted from her life in Middletown, New York, where she's living with Mark and Sharon. Um, Her mother and her aunts are sending her off to Florida to live with her grandparents. She had been taken away from her father because she had called her mom and her aunts and they came and picked her up and put her on that plane to Florida and the grandmother said that she was extremely Doreen was extremely um, angry Mm -hmm. and spiteful because she got sent away she wasn't sure okay well how would you feel confused If, if the adults in your life were violating your boundaries, throwing you from one place to another with no explanation, shipping you off away from everything you know, bringing you back. I mean, it sounds like utter, total chaos. Right. How can a child be um, behave in an organized 
healthy manner when they're surrounded by disorganization and chaos and violations and fear and right we did ask her if mark was doing anything to her and she denied it right maybe she was too embarrassed to say something or she was afraid maybe she was afraid i'm sure i'm sure she was afraid of him right there's no doubt she was afraid of him she said that to you i'm sure she was yeah and and not only that he he had her under control right no well, because uh, so I know of a time when um, they went up to I think it was Middletown, you know, Donna and her sisters or or Donna and one of her sisters and got Doreen out of school right? and sent her to you. Right. She, yeah, she came to me. Do you remember when that was? Oh, she was little then. She was like eight or nine, okay. nine years old, eight or nine years old. Maybe. Yeah, about that. Do you remember? Do you remember why um, Donna sent her down? Third grade. What grade? How old would you be in third grade? About eight. Eight. Yeah. Oh, that's what she was about eight years old. Do you Do you remember why? um, She was like very bitter. I was like very. It was was hard to explain her personality, you know, because it wasn't. It wasn't like what a little girl should be. Okay. And, and and you just you just don't know. Maybe this is the way her personality is supposed to be. I mean, because I never had to deal with something like that in my whole life. Yeah. And I never did since. Um. So she was a bitter when she came to live with you when she was like eight. She was bitter. Yeah, but it wasn't. I mean, she would do things spitefully. You know, it's like I and I had my I had my son. He was like. Um, See, he was in first year high school, or eighth grade. My son was in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So he was, uh, let's see, about 12, I guess, 11, 12, mm-hmm. in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So he was in eighth grade, and she would really bug him, you know. She would annoy him to no end, and, and they would fight constantly. I mean, it was a battle. She, she was tough. My son is really easy going, and I'm really surprised that she would get to him. Right. You know, she had a, she had a way of doing it. I don't know how she did it. <laughs> you know, I can't explain it. She's. I loved her dearly. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I loved her dearly, but she was a handful. So there's a lot of things going on in that last clip with Jane, um, just talking about behaviors. That particular clip, sort of. I think shows us a side of Doreen's personality that we haven't seen yet. Um, Jane described her as being very bitter. Um, she also t- talked about, Jane also talked about her youngest, um, her son, Joe, and how uh, at the time that Doreen came and moved in with them, um, they were kind of like rivals. Right. Um, it's important to keep in mind the ages here. Um, there's, you know, uh, Joe is the youngest. Um, Donna, Debbie, and Carol are his older sisters. So there's only about a five-year age difference between Joe and Doreen. Right. And I, I was able to talk to Joe a lot. And because, again, we need to apologize. There's too much audio. There's so much going into this. But, you know, Joe said... Um, First, he wanted to kind of sound a warning about what his mother said. He said he didn't remember 
Doreen being as spiteful as Jane did because he was five years older and he puts himself in this position of being his his mother's prize, kind of. You know, he's the youngest of four. He's the only boy. Uh, that's the exact living situation I have with my son, um, who is the baby of the family. Um, you know, he was very prized and he's in Florida with his parents and all of a sudden Doreen sort of uh, crashes the party. Um, but... He wanted to remind me, too, just like I think, you know, Aunt Debbie did um, at a certain point that Doreen gave as good as she got. And so did Joe, that they were they had this back and forth relationship, sort of the struggle for power, but it was never necessarily um, spiteful. So, you know, I think some people might jump all over Jane here, but Joe is really careful that he doesn't want his mother spoken ill of because you know, she had she had a hard time. She tried to retire. She's got a teenage boy, and now she's got a little girl that she's also um, being charged with the care of. Yeah, I think you need to treat everybody with fairness here because, you know, it's not a, a good or fun situation for anybody in that scenario. Um, you know, why do children act bitter and act out and act just in anger and do mean things. I mean, it's not for fun. It's because they're they're acting out because they're trying to get something out of them because they're angry about something. Right. And again, I think it's important too to remember the ages. Um, when Doreen went missing, she was 12. And Joe told me it was really difficult because um, it was the weekend of his high school graduation. So my oldest daughter just graduated from high school yesterday. And you know, it was a very joyous event. It was a very bittersweet event. But, you know, now put yourself in the position where your niece has gone missing. Um, you know, I think we all struggle with those moments where something really happy and lovely and and nice is has to be tempered with this sad um, event or memory. And it's it's difficult to come to terms with that, which is something that Joe has to do every day. How is that not tattooed in your brain at That's that right. point to 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 attach something so devastating with a milestone like that in your life? Yeah. And for me, you know, I have I have bad memories around the 4th of July from when I was a kid. Um, my father passed away. Uh, I just turned um, 17 years old on the 4th of July, and he was dead two days later. So it's a very, you know, celebratory event. Um, it's very joyful. It's very fun. You know, it's filled with fireworks and hot dogs and swimming. But I have that, um, you know, like you said, tattooed on me. So um, it's difficult. You have to also in this situation, keep in mind the behaviors too, because it's not you know, the, the whole back and forth between Joe Murad and Doreen, um, it's not just because they were kids. It's because of the things that were going on in their life. You know, there's other behaviors that um, Doreen's former teacher, Tom Pannone, um, talked about. A little more... Um, Graphic. It, graphic, intimate, I was going to say. And um, can you kind of explain what he told you? Yeah. So again, apologies for not having the audio and apologies to you, uh, Tom. But he noticed a few times during the school year that he would come around the corner and she would have her hands down her pants. There were a few times that he would come around the corner and she would have her hands down the front of her pants. Okay. Um, 
he brushed it off and he said, so I'm trying to do the math. This would have been like 84, 85. He brushed it off thinking, okay, maybe she has an itch or something because she would pull her hands back as soon as she saw him. Mm -hmm. But then he said, and he didn't realize that she was missing until the 90s, I don't think. But when he got trained a few years later on sexual abuse and how it manifests, it brought his mind back to her. Most healthy kids know that you wouldn't do that in a classroom. Okay. Right? Most uh, kids are sexual and they touch themselves and everything else, but they're usually aware of the boundaries around it. Okay. Like you don't do that in class. You don't do it in the living room when there's people over. You know, mom and dad would probably say, you know, that's fine, but you need to do that in your room in private or whatever. So sexually stimulating yourself, if that's what she was doing, in the classroom would be... uh, an odd thing to do for a healthy kid. Okay. An emotionally healthy kid. Right. Um, yes, that could be an indication. The thing is, with, with a child, their body responds like like other people's do when it's sexually stimulated. Just because they're children doesn't mean that they don't have sexual feelings. So just like, you know, raising children and toddlers, they are touching themselves all the time until they're told not to do that in the room with other people. But a child that's been sexually abused, now they've been sexually aroused and they don't have the um, foresight and the and the discipline to say to themselves, okay, I can't keep doing this. It feels good, so I'm just going to do it. Um, a child who's been sexually abused is going to be more likely to do more of that in places where they, you know, typically would be frowned upon. Okay. They can't stop doing it because it's happened to them and it's it's twisted every normal thing up into a into nothing makes sense okay so a child will become can become sexually preoccupied but not really even understand that's what's happening to them right they don't really know it's sexual it's you know it's just a thing that's happening to them it just becomes so convoluted and so i think all children when they've been violated like that know that they've been violated to to some level, mm-hmm. there's just sort of like a biological understanding that this isn't appropriate. But when it's a person of authority or your parent or your family member, it gets all twisted up with, oh, well, somebody I trust wouldn't do this to me if it was bad. Right. But it, they don't, this doesn't feel right. To, you know, it just becomes, it's almost like the child just, everything is chaos in their brain. Nothing makes sense. Right. So their behavior is going to become like like that, where where they do things that just don't make sense, except for if you add in the explanation that they've been abused. Karen brings up something really important. Um, she says that it's not unusual for children to touch themselves. Um, I mean, that we know that that's you know, it's a common thing. Uh, children are curious. Um, but this is something that you see in little kids, typically, Um, a a child as they get older, you know, around fourth grade, fifth grade level, knows not to touch their private parts in public in front of people. Right. So and it's something you have to bear in mind, like, so why is why is a nine, 10 year old child in fourth grade this compelled to touch herself and 
risk being caught. And actually, I mean, being caught, I mean, the teacher did see her do it a few times. And I think the really crummy part, again, I just have to keep reiterating is that we don't have 43 year old Doreen here to answer those questions. Um, You know, if Debbie or Carol wants to talk about all this chaos in their brain and how they felt and how they might have acted out as children and and what this might have made them do or act or think, we can get them to tell us. But Doreen isn't here to, I guess, I don't want to say defend herself, just explain. Because I, I remember reading about this somewhere that the child's body will still have a sexual response. Yes. Right, yes. even though, okay. You, yes, often, and that's why there's so much guilt and shame associated with sexual abuse. If somebody walks up and punches you in the face, mm-hmm. you get no pleasure out of that. Right. So you're not afraid to say, <clears throat> somebody assaulted me. But if somebody touches you in a way, and you're, chi- you're, you're a child and your body is like a machine, so it responds, there's the whole, well, I must have wanted that to happen to me because it felt pleasurable in... Mm my privates or whatever and so the perpetrator can use that to say well you you wanted it it felt so good you know Mm -hmm. and children believe anything that old you know that somebody in in a position of authority says to them right especially probably the younger you start right sure it just becomes a normalized yes um what are some tools that somebody would use to groom a child I know um, you just touched on a bunch, but specifically, what kind of tools would you use to sexually groom a child? Well, you would make the relationship a special thing, different than everybody else's. <clears throat> if you were the, the predator, you would tell the child that they're, they're your favorite, or they're special to you in some way because they're prettiest or most mature or whatever, to make the child feel special mm-hmm. and therefore want your attention more and then you can exploit it okay and use it to your advantage are you playing the kid against other grown-ups too oh yeah you you would be telling the child in most cases obviously can't speak to every single case but you would be telling the child that your mom won't understand or you know your your cousins will think you're bad or whatever it's got to be a secret sometimes they will say you know, if, if you tell people about this, they're going to be so upset, they'll probably kill themselves. Um, your mom and dad will get divorced. It can be any number of things, but the relationship is the special secret. Right. And what they do, often the child is helping the adult because he has needs or whatever. So it's all, all designed to ingratiate the child to the, to the person. Now, with that in mind, I want to play for you now another clip of Jane Murad, Doreen's grandmother. Was um was Doreen showing you those letters? Oh, yeah, she showed me them. Oh, yeah. I, actually, I read them before I would read them before he, she read them. Okay. You know, I wanted to make sure everything was okay. You know, and it, it wasn't bad. I mean, it was like too mushy. You know what I mean? It was too mushy for a little kid, if you can understand what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> That's really weird. But like, if that's not the kind of relationship you should be having with your kid. No, no. You just say, I love you, I miss you, I can't wait to see you, stuff like that. You, you don't write, uh, it's just, it was just a mushy thing. And, and it was horrible the way he put, but I mean, there wasn't nothing wrong with it, but it was the way he put it, you know, it was really strange. Like, what's but the... I knew there was an alter, alternative, alternative motive in his behavior, 
now I can, you know, reflect and I can understand more like what he was trying to say. When Mark was in and out of jail, he would write everybody letters uh-huh. from jail, including the aunts that really? he had abused. Really? Yes. You'd always, they said, get his letters. And then the grandmother told me that um, when Doreen was down in Florida, Mark would send Doreen letters as well. Did anybody read those letters? The grandmother read the letters. And? And then gave them to Doreen. Were they inappropriate? Yes. Really? She said, at first she said they were overly mushy. Mm-hmm. And I said, she said, you don't say things like that to a kid. And I said, well, I guess it depends on what the overly mushy thing is. And I think the grandmother's words, one of her examples was something like, I can't wait to hold you. Okay. That is something a parent would say to a child that you wouldn't think twice about unless you knew something about the parent that, that creeped you out. Then you would read that differently okay do you know what i'm saying yes so what you know about this person shapes your outlook shapes how you see that letter okay so i might write to my son i wish i could you know kiss you all over yeah i miss you so much i just want to squeeze you or something that that's completely innocent because he's far away and i miss him but if you believed me to be somebody who had abused children you would hear that sentence from me completely differently. So Karen talks about how what we know about Mark shapes the way we see the letters. Um, You know, we heard in those clips how when Mark was in prison, he would he would write letters to Debbie and Carol from prison. And he would also write letters uh, to Doreen when she was living down in Florida. You know, right there we're beginning to see some parallels with the memories that we've heard from Doreen's aunts um, and things that were going on with Doreen. And as Jess talked about with Karen, when we first met Debbie and Carol, they said that it was gross and uncomfortable for them to be receiving these letters. But still a normal practice, though. And I think that's one of the things you hear Jane struggling with is that you hear her go back and forth, right? Like it was mushy, but it was horrible but he wasn't saying anything wrong but it was too mushy and she sees in hindsight there was something really wrong with it but that's what the benefit and the the advantage of age I think Jane still did not understand what Mark was trying to do with those letters which like Karen said was to make the relationship a special one yeah it's the grooming it all comes back to the grooming, to ingratiate a child. I mean, even to this day, we sort of have this stereotypical image of what a predator looks like. So compare that to what people thought a predator was back in the 70s or back in the 80s. I don't think that, I mean, I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, we're not as educated about this kind of thing back then as we are now. And even now, there's still a long ways to go. So how are you going to define, how can you put into words back at that time, this feels wrong, um, but I can't explain why it feels wrong. Right. And we're coming at it with that extra education and all that extra information. 
and through the shade of what we know Mark to be from the words of his sisters-in-law, Debbie and Carol and Donna and, and Jane too. But we're not in a position to read those letters because those letters are all long gone. Well, it's so disturbing to me too. The first time I ever heard that clip from Jane, the way she said too mushy and she says too mushy like three times and each time she says it not being able to read those letters and know what was actually said it's just it gives me such a a feeling in the pit of my stomach like Mm -hmm. what what was being said that Doreen's own grandmother knew that it was too mushy and just inappropriate to say to a child but you know right but she gave her those letters though which is I think, again, a lot of people on the followers page are talking now. And if you're not on the followers page, guys, get on because there's a lot of discussion. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people that want to cast aspersions on Jane or the women or they want to cast doubt or blame. You can hear in Jane's words, she still can't really wrap her mind around what was going on because mushy is not the word, but she's trying to communicate to you there was something wrong. And I still don't think... She can fully comprehend it. Something also unusual about Doreen's behavior uh, when, and this was not necessarily when Doreen was living with Jane down in Florida. It was when they were there on vacation, uh, when Doreen was still living at her father's house. This was something that uh, we were told by Doreen's aunts. um, That she had gone down to Florida to, to visit her grandparents And they had a pool and Doreen insisted on swimming naked, which we thought was when we heard that extremely bizarre. Yeah. um, I mean, little kids swim naked, like two, three, four years old. They swim naked. But I don't know if we've been able to capture the exact time that Doreen was in Florida. But we're talking uh, nine, 10, 11 years old. She's swimming naked. And insisting upon it. She couldn't even wear a bathing suit. So Donna and the and her sisters were telling me a little bit about, you know, that Doreen would want to swim at your house, but she would want to swim naked too, right? Right. Right. But she did do it. Yeah. She did do it. She did. And, you know, my husband, well, when he was alive, I think he almost, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. You know, he said, you know, get some clothes on, you know? But she, she couldn't, he, he, because he was worried about her getting, he knew if she wasn't fully dressed and she had a tan, this is what it was, if she had a tan, he would have known she wasn't dressed. Who, Mark? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's him, that's what she said to me. If I get a tan, he gonna know that I, I wore a bathing suit. So she said, so that's, maybe that's why she took everything off. So she got everything, you know, all tan everywhere. You know, I was the only thing, that was um, the only thing I could think of why you would do it. She said that to you, if I get a tan, he'll know? No, no, she said that to me. Doreen said that to you? Yeah, Doreen said that to me. If I get if I get a sunburn, you know, I get tan, he's going to know, especially like a bathing suit art. You know, you get a bathing suit art? Yeah. If you have your bathing suit on, you, can, you know, you can tell the difference. So she's not allowed, so that's her, her excuse for going swimming naked then? Yeah, it's like, that's her, and I thought, well, I thought that was awfully strange. I said, well, what's wrong with the way that you're supposed to wear a bathing suit when you go in the pool? 
And she just, she ignored that. She goes, well, I, I can't, I got to get it. I, if I get a tan, I got to get it all over. I go, oh, okay. I, go, oh, I couldn't figure out why. Of course, now I know why, but I couldn't figure it out then. It didn't make any sense to me. She was with her grandmother in Florida and insisted on going swimming naked. Okay. I believe same age. Okay. Yeah, that would be unusual. Okay. That could be an indication. And then the grandmother told me, I think I'm remembering this correctly, that Doreen said, I can't wear a bathing suit. My father thinks they're indecent. I have to go swimming naked so I don't have tan lines because if he sees I have tan lines, he's going to get mad. That could be absolutely true. I mean, that that's a very literal take. I mean, that's a pretty um, organized way to think about a resolution to that problem mm-hmm. of how do I hide having been in a bathing suit from somebody. Right. To not have a tan line, that's pretty smart. Why would... You know, little little kids don't think about that kind of thing. They're not aware of that kind of thing. They're not hypervigilant to what if I have a tan line or don't have a tan line. Well, the thing that really got into my head about that was, you're, I think you're definitely right. It could have been a smart approach to it, but it's also a comment perhaps on my father will see what I look like with no clothes on. True. He doesn't like it when I have, you know, marks. Right. He owns my body, not me. Right. That last thing that Karen said in there, it, it just it sticks in my mind the way she phrased it. He owns my body, not me. I think the word hypervigilant for me is what I take away is that a little kid had to worry about what her body looked like in front of her dad. Well, abs- for whatever reason. Yeah. And because uh, Karen is right. Like, I, what little kid is so hypervigilant about having tan lines? Right. I, that's just that's unheard of. Um, and it just seems very much like she, Doreen, she needed her body to look a certain way. Yep. It's to be a, satisfactory. Right. Um, or she'll get in trouble or she won't be able to please him or for whatever reason. But the hypervigilance and the, the constant awareness of a 12 year old or younger about what her body looks like, that doesn't really start happening, I think, until shortly thereafter. And it's sad that little girls don't have ownership over their bodies uh, after that, you know, but before that, it was because of what Mark saw and wanted and demanded Doreen look like. Well, and we think back to, um, you know, we talk a lot about the underwear photos and um, the 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 explanation that we were given on why those underwear photos were taken. The, the way that it was first explained to us was um, Doreen wanted to wear a bathing suit. Um, Mark thought that they were indecent and said and basically gaslit her and said, well, you know what, if you're going to parade around like that in a, a bathing suit, you might as well just do it in your bra and underpants and and take take pictures if you're going to be that way. And, you know, that was the way it was explained to us. So whether or not that was the reason for that um, remains to be seen. But uh, again, it goes back to 
the grooming and the conditioning and the gaslighting. Yeah, I think what you're seeing is something that might start out with maybe an innocent explanation if you want to cast it as that um, my father doesn't want me being in a bathing suit because it's indecent and he's a Christian. You know, I might not necessarily agree with that, but it could be very innocent. But then that starts to bleed into I have to be naked. I can't have these lines. My father will be aware because we well, here's the question we have to ask. Why is her father looking at her naked body? Why does her father know that she has tan lines on her body when she's that age? And now it's starting to bleed even further into you can't wear a bathing suit because it's indecent. So you need to pose in your underwear for me to take photographs of you. One of the most disturbing elements, I think, about this entire case. Uh, I think so, too. And I think that, you know, Doreen being so young and so innocent at the time, um, she doesn't I mean, she has no awareness of the fact that she owns her own body, Um, you know, because as a child, you're not taught that at an early age. Um, And so you're. And again, it comes back to the relationship uh, between the parent and the child. This very, um, you know, like we've heard from Jane, uh, she was his idol. Um, You know, he he was he was obsessed with her, Um, seemingly like a very doting father, very, um, very taken. Yes. And it just to me goes back to all the history that we've heard of how much control Mark always had to have over everything. And Jane said at one point, too, that she doesn't know if Mark's ever been in love with anybody else after Donna. You know, Donna was his one true love, except maybe Doreen. Uh, Mini Donna. Mm-hmm. Um, we know he's had a lot of relationships with a lot of women, but um, this is very specific. This is very disturbing. Um and this raises a lot of questions because she's his daughter, guys. She's not his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So we have much more to go with the signs in Doreen Vincent's behavior. We're going to wrap up for today. Uh, this was part one of the signs portion. Um, we're going to pick this up again in the next episode. We're going to introduce to you the former classmate of Doreen's that we had a chance to speak to. Um, she had a lot of memories of Doreen. She was a good friend of hers for the short time that they knew each other. Um, and she has pretty specific memories of some bizarre behavior, too, that she, like everyone else, um, only realized in hindsight just how unusual it was. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. There is, of course, the closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. I want to thank Jessica fritz for coming in again today. Appreciate that. My pleasure as always. It's hard to talk about these things, but um, it's good to talk about these things. I think it's important to talk about these things, especially in Doreen's case, because before our podcast started covering her, uh, nobody knew about her. So I think it's important 31 years to the day to get that get that story told. Um, because as we mentioned earlier, as we record this, it is June 15th, 2019, 31 years to the reported day that Doreen went missing. Yeah. And so Sarah and I, in case anybody doesn't know, in case we haven't been hyping it enough, 
are leaving now to go to Gouveia Vineyards, Mm -hmm. which is literally right across the street from the house where Doreen went missing. Uh, We're trying to raise awareness about her story. We're trying to talk to armchair detectives um, who might have insight into, you know, things we haven't thought about. Aunt Debbie will be there. There's going to be a journalist from the Record Journal there. Concerned citizens will be there. Our family members will be there. Joe will be there. We're trying to make this as big and loud and awareness raising as possible. So as always, everyone, tune in next time as we're going to go over more of the signs and more of some of the disturbing behaviors that were seen in Doreen. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.